You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible and you want to make your way to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at chapter 3 and finishing out the series with verses 6 through 18. If you're using one of those Bibles under the seat somewhere near you, it'll be on 1050. 1050. Just just real quick, because so many of you have asked me today, and, and for good reason. Uh, I am doing fine. I had a stroke-like event uh, this week, and it turns out it was likely a acute confusional migraine, which is something that is a little more common in kids than adults, but it's a super random fluke. So I'm sorry you still get me preaching this week. We don't have a substitute. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Anyway, let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians, this is verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. It says, Now we commend you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now, we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet, Don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authentic mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look at this, conclusion to these two letters, and Lord, it it might seem initially as a hard word. Help us to understand it and see what you have for us. Help us to see, Lord, what you would have for this local body. Lord, we want to live by your truth. We want to walk straight. We want to walk by what you've laid before us. So, Lord, help me to communicate this in a way that, that does indeed communicate what you have. Lord, help us to hear it in a way that you would have us to hear it. God, help us, above all, to live by it, to be obedient and surrender to you as king, because, Lord, you have redeemed us by your precious blood. And, Lord, may we rest in your peace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but um, you're probably thinking, finally, finally, we're going to get to the bottom of potluck inequality in the church. (laughs) Clearly. No more of this, that guy signed up for chips while I'm slaving away over smoked brisket. We're not going to mess with that anymore. 
You know, Jesus, tell Mary to get up from your feet and get over here and help me. There's stuff to do. We have lots of work to do. I'm just, this really isn't about potlucks. I mean, we know that John the Baptist loved a good potluck, but what was Paul dealing with here, right? We, we need to look through what was going on in the church in Thessalonica. And so, so I want us to be able to see what might be going on here because in truth, this is actually dealing with a question we ask often ourselves and maybe others in the back corners in secret, in quiet during church events. This is a very practical issue that the Lord is helping us with. And so I I think it's fair that we deal with it. What's the question? What is it that we, we have in the back of our mind, but we very rarely ever vocalize it? And I, I bet if we took a survey, many of you have been in some event at a church event or or doing something, and you've asked this question. Here's the question this text will help us to address this morning. It is this. What do we do with those among us in the faith family, those in the church, who do not contribute to the good of the body, but are takers? What do we do with the consumers in the church? That's what this practical text is going to address for us this morning. Now, I have to concede some things. So right before we even dig in, I just have to put this out there because I want to handle this as honestly and as fairly as I can. There is some disagreement about the focus and the objective of what Paul is saying here. And it it varies widely. You probably haven't thought much about it, and I didn't think much about it until I opened a few commentaries and realized just how widely this particular topic goes. So some people believe that Paul is strictly speaking about people who are unemployed. You know, it's kind of that, if you don't work, you don't eat, that's just how it goes, too bad for you. Now, I will say, if this were true, that we have to, if if we're going to take that position, we have to understand how it actually lines up and agrees with other scripture in the Bible, verses like Matthew 25, 34 through 40, where Jesus says, when you fed them, you were feeding me. When you cared for the least of these, you were serving me. Or Isaiah 58, 7 that says, share your food with the hungry and share your shelter with the homeless. Or Luke 3, 11 that says, if you have two coats, give somebody who doesn't have one a coat. So if we're going to take that first position, we're going to have to spend some time figuring out how these line up. Another argument is not quite so much to just the unemployed, but it's saying, no, 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 this is actually about those who are unwilling to work. It's trying to get at those who don't want to work and don't want to to carry their load. And you know what? That's a little different. Still, there are others that say that this is actually somehow about the Lord's Supper in the church. And I don't know, maybe. But if this is about withholding the Lord's Supper from people who aren't doing stuff, if that's what they mean by eating, then we're going to have to say that this sin of loafing or laziness or or selfishness is a church discipline issue that causes people to be at the risk of being kicked out of the church. And I'm having a hard time seeing that's how Paul communicates that. I will be honest with you. But I do want to let you know that is a position that's out there. Now, I'm going to take this fourth position. I believe, I'm convinced at this point, that Paul's inspired words are about a bigger underlying matter that does lead to some of these things that we're thinking in our mind that might even lead to potluck inequality. But it's a much bigger issue 
And that's why he would conclude with this. And so as I go on, I'm hoping my aim is to show you why I think it is that Paul's getting at this bigger thing and why that's so significant for us in this matter. And so I don't want us to get bogged down with taking notes about, okay, this is how the U.S. government should develop its welfare system, and this is how we should do this. I don't want us to go in those directions. I want us to just let this scripture sort of flood over us and speak to us. But if we're going to understand it, we've got to get our hands dirty in it. We've got to actually question it a little bit and look at it and really see if we can understand what's here. And let's be honest, most of us in our Bible reading get to things like this and it seems really practical and we just sort of buzz over it and go, that's nice, and then on to the next book. There is something here for us. I I firmly believe that. So if you put your eyes back on verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, and and we're going to just kind of be in this a lot, so just keep your finger in there. If you close your book, we're going to be right in this area a lot. It says, now, we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. Who is this text, who is Paul addressing? Who's he talking to? Is he addressing the lazy? The idle? Is this a rebuke for them? No. It's not. This is actually an instruction or a command to those who are not idle. This is not a text for the idle. This is a text for those who are actually working and and serving. And by the way, the idol probably wouldn't be there at the reading of the letter anyway. They were, oh, I got in late and I wasn't there and I wasn't, I didn't hear. And incidentally, it already says they're not following the commands or the teachings that were passed down to them from the missionaries, Paul and those who went there. So they're already not obeying. So what would be the point of addressing those who are already in complete disobedience? No, this is actually for those who are serving and who are working. That's what it's for. And so now we have to say, okay, it's for them, but we need to understand what does Paul mean by this word idle? And this one gets really tricky, and I think, you guys know I love how translation works, and I really like the idea, if possible, that if we have a single word in the Greek or Hebrew, if we can get to the best single word or something very close in the the English, that's helpful, so we're not adding a lot, but this is a case where that idea kind of fails. We're really, we're really sold short in that translation theory in this particular word. Here's why. If we're going to go with just one word, the word that might work for what's here in idol, and by the way, this word shows up in four different similar words in First and Second Thessalonians. They're so different, though, that they get their own lexical or dictionary entry. So they're not just a, a little variation. It's, every time we see the word idle, it's like a different word here. The first three of those words can be translated idle, undisciplined, disorderly, or unruly. And you can look at those in uh, verse 6, verse 7, and then 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, that word. That's if you went with a single word. For all three of those, they have very similar definitions. But when you start looking at the definition, it might be better if it were something like not at their assigned post. It's hard to get that in a one word. I mean, derelict, but not at the assigned post. Failed, fell short, not at their assigned post, or acting with self-interest and incidentally not for the common good. That's a big phrase to stick in that little word idle. Or this one, 
out of step, going one's own way. It's hard to get that in one word, isn't it? But that's what is in this word. That's what's underneath this. So when you look at translations, you find a wide variety of words here trying to capture these meanings. And then this one, and this is just nerdy fun. Clement of Alexandria used this Greek word, but he used it for this reason. And I don't know, I, I felt like I didn't even understand the word at this point. He used it to mean, in a single word, to mean irresponsibly starting a church service at a random and disorganized time that was inconvenient for people. I'm like, what? What does that mean? <laughs> this is weird. But that's that same word. I'm like, I, what is that exactly? I'm very confused right now. But that's the idea behind what's happening here. I mean, that, it's hard to get that in one word. Now, this one's really fascinating. This is the word that gets used for idol in, in our translation in verse 11. Put your eyes on verse 11 for a minute. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. That word has a little bit definition, different definition than the rest. It's still kind of idle, but it means to walk around aimlessly, possibly in circles with no purpose or direction, specifically to avoid doing what needs to be done. Any of you ever do that when you're like, I don't, I'm, I'm busy over here. I'm not, oh, we're, we're doing deep cleaning of the house. Honey, I'm going to be out here in the backyard picking up pine cones. Like, I mean, just, I mean, like, that's what that word is. So he's talking about these people being idle, and there's a really big, meaty definition behind this in multiple words. And I wonder, why would Paul command the believers who are serving, who are faithfully working to follow the steps placed before them by Jesus, to avoid those who are aimlessly wandering around in in circles trying to avoid work, or not at their post, not serving. Why would that be the command? Why would he say avoid those ones? Now, we might be tempted, and I was tempted for the first part of this prep for this, to say, well, one bad apple spoils the batch. Right? Isn't that what we want to say? Like, that's what we're thinking, isn't it? But we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder what this is, because Scripture tells us what the problem is. It's all right here. Look back at verse 11 again. For... We hear that there are some among you who are idle. Then this fascinating line, they are not busy, but busy bodies. Paul's addressed this issue of tending to our own business versus tending to others. You remember that? Flip back over to chapter 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and look at verses 9 through 12. Just a couple pages back. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and praise God for that. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. To seek a quiet life, and here it is, to mind to your own business and to work with your own hands, since this is work happening, as we commanded you, Here's why. So that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. So in that case, this is an issue of unity and gospel witness. Seems like Paul's kind of echoing that in this other letter. But then in a letter to Timothy, a pastor, he actually really drills down into this in a deeper way. And he uses some similar language. So if you would turn the other direction to the next book in our Bible, past 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy Chapter 5, I'm going to read a fairly large section of Scripture just to get the context here. We're going to look at 9 through 14. 
Paul is trying to help Timothy keep the people served well and engaged well in the church, and he's now talking about widows enrolled in kind of a a welfare service. Verse 9 says, No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Listen to where we pick up in verse 11. But refuse to enroll the younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry, and they will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. There, uh, excuse me, they are not only idle, but they are also gossips and busybodies saying things they should not say. Paul's saying, look, when these ladies get idle, they become gossips and busybodies and create problems in the church. If it's this for young women, how much worse is it going to be for young idle men? How about idle old men or idle old women? Seems the issue here is is being idle might cause some real grief for the individual, but especially for the church and certainly for the gospel witness. Now, before we start pointing fingers, because I know right now all you guys have that one person in mind, like, oh yeah, that I got to let them know about this. Before we start pointing fingers, we need to remember that there's a ditch on both sides of this road. On the one side, the obvious problem here of idleness that we're talking about that might even be sinful, it might cause people to be busybodies, it might cause people to have some real issues. That's one side of the, the road, and it's a ditch. But the other side of this is the problem that could could possibly be sinful and way worse to the church, and that's this overdriven desire for getting tasks done and the task list. And then because you're so driven to the list, you become a task master over others. And you begin to, to, to push for the objective at the cost of the relationship. Then you start being uncaring, uncompassionate. You don't even find out why someone's not helping. Maybe there's some issue going on. Maybe there's something there that you could pour into, and you're just now mean. Because all you care about is that we get this stuff done, and you don't care about the body of Christ. That can be tremendously dangerous. If you're feeling that temptation to crack the whip, man, you might want to check yourself because you might be driving off into the other ditch. You're so concerned about them in the ditch over here, you drove into the ditch over there. That's a problem, and we want to stay right here in the middle lane. We want to have the right attitude towards our brothers and sisters and towards how we're approaching this thing together. Remember when Martha wanted Jesus to make Mary help her do the work? I'm not going to go into all that. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. That's Luke 10, 38 through 42. Read about what happened there. You know, just kind of recognize it's not the work wasn't bad. It was this attitude towards a sister that was problematic. And then 2 Thessalonians in the, the text we're in, 3, 14 and 15, says if anyone does, in fact, if you need to turn back there, I'd love if you're watching. I forgot to tell the kids, there's some kids in here. You need to make sure I get all these scriptures right. So you guys need to check this when we're doing scripture. Take a look, make sure I'm right. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, what does it say to do? Take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. 
Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. What does that say? What are we supposed to do when we see that person who's not coming along and serving in the body? It says first, just take note. Oh, there's one. No, not, no. Hey, I'm noticing there's something going on here. And it says, don't consider him or her an enemy. Think about don't. That's not an enemy. This is a brother or sister in Christ. We're not talking about outsiders or enemies. We're talking about brothers and sisters. And then it, and it says, warn him or warn her. Okay, and that doesn't mean, oh, that's it. I am going to tell that guy, get to work. Let's get going. No, it's, it's, that's not the warning that we're told to share because we are given the warning that we're supposed to share. Verses 12 and 13. Now, we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. The warning includes this clause that we often just skip right over. By the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if I'm telling you to warn somebody by the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we saying? That means that you share the words Jesus shared. It's his authority, not your authority. And you do so like Jesus did, which was loving, especially to those in the faith family. There was in truth with love. And then you let the words of God nurtured and carried along by the Holy Spirit, motivate the idle brother or sister. You let that work. It's not you twisting the arm. It's the Holy Spirit bringing about right growth and conviction. So you share the facts, and then you let God do the convicting. And while all that's happening, you just keep to the good work. I put it out there, and now I'm getting back to the, the task here. Now, I remember at the beginning, I told you I wanted to show you why I think this is more than just unemployment and more than a person not doing their fair share. I, I, I want to prove that to you now. So I'm going to show you why I think that. First, when you look at Paul's evidence for the claim that he's making, which is verses 7 through 10, he, he says, look, this is what we did. This is what, you notice that he says, we weren't idle. We wanted to serve well to serve as an example to you. If you've been reading your Bible, if you've been thinking about Paul, let me ask you, what do you think Paul wanted to see as the example? If he was modeling something, what was he trying to demonstrate? Was he saying, follow me as I follow a good work ethic? Look at how much I don't ever get good rest and I just toil and I labor to make money? Do you think that's how Paul approached this? I don't think so, because in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. That's Paul's example. So whatever it was he was doing, it was so they would see Christ in some way. Not some guy working hard to make good money and, and buy bread. Now that might be a small part of it, like a good work ethic is a part of that, but imitating Christ was the bigger piece of it. I definitely believe that's the case because over in Verse 6, the start of this whole thing, it says, keep away from every brother or sister who is idle. And then note this, don't miss it. And does not live according to the tradition received from us. So what do you imagine were the traditions or the teachings that Paul was teaching them? I mean, this is Paul we're talking about. We've read Paul. What do you think Paul spent his time on when he had time to teach them? Well, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he told the church in Corinth, I decided to know nothing 
among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he taught. That's what he preached. He didn't come in there and have, you know, five rules on having a good friendship and six ways to be a better employee and eight things to do in your marriage. I knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. Does that mean he doesn't know anything? No. He was a Pharisee, trained in much, lived with lots of life, but that's what he came to show as an example. That's what he spent his time talking about. That's all that consumed him in the church in Corinth, and why would that be any different in Thessalonica? I don't think it would be. The love of Christ compelled Paul. He said that in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Then he goes on in that passage to say, it was because they concluded this. This is why he was compelled by Jesus. This conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he who died for all did so that those who should live no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Because of the gospel, I'm compelled. That's what's compelling him, and that's what's moving him. The gospel. So this here is not about organizational structure to make sure everybody's pulling their fair share. It's about something bigger. And that something bigger will compel us to love one another and unselfishly be motivated and moved to do something bigger than ourselves. What does that? What causes that? Paul says, for Paul, it was the gospel. I think that's true for us too. The gospel moves us in this way. And what is that? If you're sitting there and you're wondering, or you're watching on the, the video, how is the gospel movement? What, what are we talking about here? What I'm talking about is, is the fact that even as we are confessing in song our problems with sin, as we are singing together, we realize sin produces an ugly and wicked poisonous fruit in us and all of us. But the gospel is what comes and says, you will be redeemed, you will be changed. The gospel is that Jesus Christ would take the sin in you and trade it for his righteousness, thus producing good fruit in you by you holding on to him and you taking that, him taking that sin and dying for it and being laid in the grave. He was dead. On the third day, he walked out of the grave, but he left the sin behind. Where? In the grave. Whose sin was it? His? No, he lived a perfect life. It was yours and mine. Because he did that, he says, now that I've bought you with my sacrifice, with my blood, I want you to live as a people in this way. Because that brings him glory. That becomes a witness to others. That's an act of worship to him. That's what he's doing. He's redeeming you for his glory. That's the gospel. When Paul got his head around this, he went, wait a second. I don't live for myself anymore. I don't need to wander around over here aimlessly picking up pine cones or something. I need to live for the purpose of God's people, for God's glory, because he put me in this family. And if I love him, I love them, as he's called me to do. And when we do this together, who benefits? This isn't for the faith family. It's for the person serving, because you get to have more encounters with Christ. You get to walk with him. You get to be moved in the gospel more and more and more and more. So how about that? This is what motivated and moved Paul, he lived for Christ. And here's what happens when you're, when you're giving yourself to others because of your love compelled by Christ. It's almost 
I would say impossible, or maybe completely impossible, that you're doing that in such a way that you're completely selfish, or idle, or lazy. You can't be idle in Christ, selfish in Christ. You're serving in this. This is a benefit and a blessing to you to grow and to be more like Christ and understand Him. So laboring and serving one another is a gift to you. And when you're over in the corner trying to avoid helping, you're just cheating yourself. You're missing out on the opportunity to find the joy of walking with Christ rather than sitting around and doing nothing. Because what he's doing is saying, as I served and washed feet, and as I did this, you can too, and you're going to experiencing me in ways you wouldn't that the world offers in these selfish journeys. That's what's happening here. So now I want to take this back to the original question. What do we do with those among us in the faith family here in the church who just don't contribute to the good of the body, but they only take? What do we do with that? In light of the gospel, in light of this bigger picture, this bigger command, I think there's four things that the text drives us to. The first one is, I think, I hope, just implied for those of us who love Jesus. It's not written in here. I confess that. I can't point to clear scripture to make this, but I think when I say it, you'll agree with me. The first thing we should do when it comes to idle Christians not digging into their spiritual journey, not growing, not helping, not serving, not they're just there. It's just a shallow sort of existence in their Christianity. The first thing we should do is we should be heartbroken for them. We should be sad. They're idle and walking around, maybe walking in circles without direction, just hoping something's going to work out or hoping something. And they're just not, they're not seeing that Jesus has placed clear steps, a clear path for them to journey on and grow on and come closer to Christ and be a part of the body in this new way. We should be sad for them. Today in our day, big churches, small churches, churches in the South, and not just churches in the South, there's this prevalent problem, at least in America, of shallow Christianity. I got in through the door, And now I'm just going to sit on my butt and do nothing. I'm good. And I'm not going to contribute, and I'm not going to serve, and I'm not going to learn, and I'm not going to grow, and I'm not going to be in a Bible study. I'm just here. It's just a miracle I make it to church once every six weeks. I mean, like, that's a prevalent problem. And the heartache that I have is that often my sin temptation is to be mean to those people. Like, oh, they're just consumers. They're just taking. They're not contributing. They're not helping. They're not serving. They're not sharing. Oh my goodness. Oh, what a state of terror and horror in the church. This is awful. We got to fix it. We got to get these consumers out of here. Is that not what we're tempted to do and say? That shouldn't be the attitude of a Christian who's walking with Christ. We should be so sad that they're not growing. They're not learning. They're not finding opportunities to joyfully serve, to go pick up a brother or sister who can't drive and and bring them to church, to open the door and say welcome, to make coffee and say, I'm just doing this for you because I love you, to spend time at practice to do this kind of service or to teach a study or to pray for people. Like That's a blessing for us. And they're missing out completely and it should make us weep. The state of the church should make us cry because it's so shallow. It shouldn't make us angry. It shouldn't make us angry. We should be bringing them along and and encouraging them. That's what this text is really all about. Number two, and I do have scripture here for these. 
while this is happening, don't grow weary doing good. That's verse 12. Why in the world would Paul have to say that? I know why. Because we grow weary. And you know what makes us weary? When we see somebody else not serving and then we kind of start grumbling in our heart like, well, I'm over here doing all this work and they're not doing anything. I get here early and, and I try to open the doors and, and I'm here on a Saturday and vacuuming and I'm the one who's making coffee. It's not, I don't do all this stuff. You guys do this stuff, but that's the grumble. And, and, and we get so, I'm doing this. Don't they care? Don't they want to carry their share of the load? Are they just going to stand around over there while I work and watch? And what happens is our heart grows bitter towards a brother or sister. And then what do we say? If they're not going to help, I'm not going to help. I'm done with this. I'm so tired of helping when no one else is helping. I'm so tired of bringing the smoked brisket when that guy brings chips. This is ridiculous. By the way, I don't smoke brisket, so if you do, great. We love you. I bring chips. Um, (laughs) I mean, here's what's happening in this circumstance. We get frustrated and we get self-righteous because we see an immature brother or sister not serving well. So we let the immature brother or sister, or the one that's struggling or idle, greatly influence our opportunity to walk with Jesus, and then we miss out on the joy of serving the Lord and walking with the Lord. And we do it because of the disciples who are not walking well with Jesus. So we miss Jesus because of other people who aren't concerned about Jesus. I'm just going to be really blunt here. That's dumb. That's st- that, is like, that is like if Peter, James, and John decided, you know what? Judas is always stealing from the money bag, and he just stabbed Jesus in the back. That's it. I'm done with Christianity. Like, are you you're going to let Judas dictate your relationship with Jesus? That's what that's what we're doing when we get so mad about somebody. Who's just and I'm not saying people aren't serving or Judas, but I'm just like when the weaker disciple isn't doing something, why are we letting the disciple dictate our relationship with Jesus rather than letting Jesus dictate our relationship with Jesus? So that's what causes us to grow weary. If you're growing weary, that's probably what's going on. All right, number three, we should warn our idle brother or sister. That's verse 15. We should warn them. And what's that warning? Get in gear, you loafer. No, no. This is a brother or sister who's missing out and doesn't realize it. And they're shallow and they they don't see it and they're not experiencing the depth and the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the the path that he has for us and the opportunity he has for us to live as his people, they're missing out. So you you warn them in a way that encourages and provokes and and moves them along so that they might see this and might be moved by it. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, or you could say to, to nudge or encourage, to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now this, I think, is having to do with these gatherings for sure. If there are people that are, that are here, well, I'm going to derail us for just a brief moment to make this point. Talking with a pastor, I don't want to, you know, I didn't ask for permission to share this, so I'm going to keep it very guarded. We joke here often like, man, if everybody that attends our church regularly in some consistency all showed up at the same time, which is what happens usually like on Easter or Christmas, there'd be like 90-something people here. 
So why is there only 70-something people here? Well, because they don't all come at the same time. And some people have a real consistency of only coming every other week. And other people have a real consistency of only coming every third week. And you know what? If you know those people are there, why don't you call them and say, hey, you want to go get a cup of coffee first, and then let's go to church together. Hey, you want to go? So you're encouraging and, and provoking. Let's do this together. That's just one thing, just this church service. But what about all the other things we're doing? Hey, you want to come to the Bible study with me? Hey, how are you doing? Do you just want to pray with me? Hey, we're doing a thing at the, the nursing, nursing home, assisted living facility. You want to just join me? Like, this is the issue here, right? Like, bring them along, encourage them along. Call, I didn't see how you're doing. I'm not just checking up on you to, to berate you. I'm just concerned about you because there's such grand opportunity. That's what this verse in Hebrews is really talking about. Don't neglect to gather together. Bring them along. And you can do that in such depth in so many ways. So we just want to encourage. They're missing out on a better thing. Okay, the fourth one, and I'm almost done. <laughs> I'm going to say it this way. This is a very technical, very technical translation. Don't associate with a loafer. That's verse 14. We don't like this verse because it sounds weird in our context. All right, don't associate with them so that they would be ashamed. Like we hear that and we, we import a lot of English stuff in there. That's not a shunning, okay? To shun the brother or sister, don't ever get around. That's not what any of these verses we've looked at say. No, it's something more like this. Don't hang around with them. Invite them to hang around with you. Don't let them drag you into what they're doing. You bring them into what you are doing. So you're inviting them to follow Jesus. And that's not just the, I'm inviting you for the first time into the gospel. You're inviting them to follow Jesus every day and what he has for us in his word and what he has for us in the church. Bring them along with you. You know what? There's a word for that. It's called discipleship. Disciple somebody by saying, come with me as I follow Christ. Right? Echo Paul. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Call up somebody and say, hey, come with me. I'm following Jesus. You should follow Jesus too. All right, let's, let's do this thing. Hey, I'm making coffee on Sunday. You want to come help? Hey, I'm doing this thing over in this way I can serve. Come with me. Hey, I'm working in children's ministry. Yeah, we have background checks and stuff, but hey, get a background check and then come serve with me. Praise, God. Praise the Lord, right? Hey, come help over here. Hey, you know what? You just want to come hang out with me in this way or that way? Or hey, we're... just come with me. How many of you have had this in your life? And isn't it such a blessing? I remember a guy going, I'm just going to buy more sodas for the church. You want to go to Costco? Okay. And then we talk about Jesus and we become friends. I mean, this was like a really pivotal way for me to grow. You can do that for others. So when it says don't associate with the idol, it's really saying don't go down the road with where they're at, but really warn them and bring them to where you are at. Because if you hang out where they're at, you're letting them disciple you into a path that's not where Jesus has you going. So help them and, and grow them and, and willingly be a part of that. Put an arm around somebody and just encourage them. We get to travel on this wonderful journey with Jesus and we get to do it together. That's what this really is. But, but we need to be with those who spur us forward, who encourage us and spur us on rather than being around the ones that seem to invite us to stall out or stop. I'm going to close with two illustrations. The first might be incredibly hard for you to believe. But I used to run a half marathon through the Garden of the Gods in Colorado, if you've ever been there. It's over a mile high in elevation. I used to do that every single Saturday. Every Saturday. 
I know, under this fat suit, I am a chiseled runner. But I also used to lift a lot of weights. And I was in a lot better shape. And a lot of the soldiers, I was in the military, and a lot of the soldiers around me weren't doing that. Because on a Friday night or a time off, they were hanging around with people that encouraged them to stall and stop. I hung around with people who liked to run, which is dangerous. Because then you run a lot. And they liked to lift weights. You know what that did for me? It encouraged me and it, and it spurred me on. And the next thing I knew, I was encouraging them and spurring them on. And, and you need that in life. And how much more do we need that in our spiritual journey? through this difficult and challenging terrain of this world as we're making our way to glory. Think about the people you're hanging out with and the consequences of that and how you can spur them on rather than letting them draw you into the spiritual recliner. It's, it's a big deal. Now I'll leave you with one more illustration. Most of you know I love John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress some of you know so much that at Christmas he gave me a really cool Marvel comic book. Did you know Marvel made a pilgrim? I mean, listen, if you have not read The Pilgrim's Progress, find one in, in modern English and read it. Or just find the video. That's, that's a, this, I mean, this is a great story. One of the things I really love about this allegory is that Pilgrim, the, or excuse me, Christian, the Pilgrim, the protagonist in the story, has great difficulty in this story when he's alone. And that's the moments when he has the greatest despair. He's in the pit of despondence. He just doesn't know what to do. And he's over here in the, going through the valley of the shadow of death, alone, and he doesn't know what to do. He's learning that he always has Jesus with him. He learns that. But what's more beautiful to me in this story, written by a man who was in prison by himself for years, writing this story, he was in prison, incidentally, for preaching the gospel, a man in prison by himself wrote this into the story and believes that it's the Christian life, and I do too. The times, there were times when Christian faced tremendous difficulty, beatings, arrest, captured by a giant. Uh, it's graphic, but the giant's trying to force them into suicide. I mean, like, these are hard times. Uh, one of the people was martyred. I mean, this is ferocious in the story. In the times when he was alone, the smallest things like falling in a mud bog almost brought him to his end. But in all the rest of the times, he had one of two friends with him. He had faithful, and he had hopeful. Those were their names. Faithful was martyred and burned at the stake, just beaten and it was terrible. But still in that moment, spurred Christian on. I'm stopping my journey here and going to the celestial city, but you're going on. And God brought him another friend, hopeful. And in the difficult challenges of the story, because he had others spurring him on, continuing on the we must go forward, we must continue to the celestial city, he pressed onward with great courage. And it's an allegory for our Christian journey. God provides us people around us to spur us on. And he's calling you, to be those people to spur on our brothers and sisters. I think that's what this text is about, and I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we look to what you have here for us, I thank you that you put brothers and sisters around us to, to encourage us, to spur us forward. Lord, in the things that you've given us in this life, you've given us friends. 
So Lord, I would ask that we would be mindful of this, that we wouldn't be hard on our brothers and sisters who are idle, but we would encourage them and we would warn them and we would, we would invite them into more. God, for those of us in here who might be a little idle or a lot idle, bring brothers and sisters around us and encourage us and spur us on that we would encounter you in a way that we've never encountered you before because you're working through the people around us. Lord, we, we don't want to be in the, in the condition of shallow idleness. That's my prayer that we'd be a church that would, would spur one another on well, put an arm around each other and encourage each other. But we wouldn't be encouraging each other to do less, but to do more, to know you more, to study more, to love you more, to walk with you more, to serve others in service to you more. And Lord, in all of that, that you would give us great joy and great peace as you are doing the work through us and in us because of your gospel, because you bought us with your blood. You bought us with your work on the cross and and you didn't buy us to sit around and put our feet up in a recliner. You bought us for more. You've given us good works to do, not for our salvation, you did that, but for our growth and our sanctification and for our joy in this life. God, move us and compel us in that. It's in Jesus' name, amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.